Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Mvemba Pezo Dizolele. I'm a senior fellow and the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This is a podcast where we talk everything Africa, politics, economics, security, and culture. Welcome. The Wagner Group, the best-known Russian private military company, is a complex security and business network that closely works with the Kremlin. Lately, the Wagner Group has made the headlines for its element attempt to overthrow the military leadership in Moscow, accusing the defense minister Sergei Zhoiku and other military officials of incompetence. Their brief march on Moscow caught the Kremlin unaware and raised questions about the effectiveness of the Russian defense, security, and intelligence apparatus. Founded in 2014 and led by Yevgeny Prigozhin, President Vladimir Putin's former chef, the Wagner Group has cemented its position as the Kremlin's strategic ally in advancing Moscow's foreign policy. Recruiting Russian military veterans, prisoners, and foreign nationals, the Wagner Group provides the Kremlin with plausible deniability and flexibility in covert operations abroad. Relations between the Kremlin and the Wagner Group became even more important as Moscow struggled to keep the Russian economy afloat after the U.S. and its allies imposed extensive sanctions on Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. Wagner's presence in Africa is notable as its elements provide a spectrum of services to vulnerable regimes and are engaged in the exploitation of resources such as gold, diamond, timber, etc. Several questions then linger. How big is the Wagner Group? Who controls it? Why does the Wagner Group get such a disproportionate media coverage given that there are many private military companies in the world? These are just some of the questions that we have today. Joining me to talk about this outfit are Katrina Doxy, the Associate Director and Associate Fellow with the Transnational Threats Program here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and Delani Simon, a Senior Analyst for the U.S. Program at the International Crisis Group, where she researches and writes about U.S. foreign policy in conflict zones and non-military tools for crisis prevention. Ladies, welcome to Into Africa. Thank you for having us. I will start with you, Katrina. What exactly is the Wagner Group and why should we care? So, first of all, I should start out by saying that we often call the Wagner Group a PMC or private military company. That's just sort of the closest analog we have to understanding how it functions relative to how other private military companies work. But in actuality, it's not actually private and it's not actually a company. Instead, Wagner is better thought of as a loose network of different commercial entities, financial intermediaries, shell companies, and other logistics hubs that help to carry out a wide variety of operations as opaquely as possible. So this includes the core function of this paramilitary group, but also various other things, including resource exploitation, particularly mineral extraction, including smuggling, things like controlling media stations and running influence and information operations. All of those different functions are tied together in this shadowy network that's connected back to Wagner's leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin. 
This is important to understand for the United States and for its allies because Wagner has really been at the forefront of Russia's approach to spreading its influence abroad, particularly in Africa, as well as to a lesser extent in other regions, including the Middle East, Latin America, Southeast Asia. We've seen that Russia has really used the Wagner Group as a tool of irregular warfare. And this is where that private part comes in and private military company. So even though Wagner operates quasi-independently, everything it does has been in coordination with the Russian government, because first and foremost, in addition to their own financial interests as a company, they're pursuing a wide range of geopolitical, military, and economic goals on the part of the Russian government. And so not only do we have a predatory company that is causing a wide range of social and humanitarian, economic and security harms in the countries and the regions in which it's operating. But in doing so, it's also spreading Russian influence, often at the expense of Western relationships, particularly from countries like France and others in Europe. And it's posing this direct threat to U.S. interests as it allows Russia to continue to spread their military and intelligence footprint and really puts it in a better position to project power and to challenge international norms. You said it's a loose network of businesses and other entities. Do they have a legal standing in Russia itself or are they also covert in Russia? So... Private military companies are technically illegal under Russian legal code. That doesn't mean that they haven't long operated, though. So there have been other PMCs before Wagner, some of which are doing these similar overseas operations. Others are more closely tied, especially to Russian energy companies, companies like Rosneft or Gazprom to provide security for them. But overall, this structure where PMCs are illegal but permitted to operate through loopholes in the law, allows the Kremlin to exert control and leverage over them. Therefore, if a PMC steps out of line, if it tries to take on interests that run counter to the interests of Moscow, if it tries to center its own profits above those of the Russian government, it could theoretically be dissolved overnight with leadership arrested and so on. This is one of those things that's swirling around now, of course, as we think about the future of Wagner and the future of Yevgeny Prigozhin. However, Wagner's in kind of a weird place in terms of that legal presence. We've long seen that a number of these shell companies in the Wagner orbit are registered back to, you know, one individual in St. Petersburg. So they technically exist on paper, but it's illegitimate in terms of what they're actually doing to operate. The core paramilitary piece of it does not exist on paper in Russia. But since they've started playing a bigger role in Ukraine last fall, in the fall of 2022, we did see a more outright acknowledgement of Wagner's existence and its ties to the Russian government. This included things like Prigozhin outright admitting his leadership of the group, the group actually establishing its first official headquarters building, notably on Russian soil in St. Petersburg, even though they are still technically illegal there and just more openly acknowledging this connection to the Russian government. In the time since Prigozhin's mutiny, we've had Putin actually come out and openly admit to the degree to which the Russian government has been funding and supporting the Wagner Group. We have long identified, as it kind of made this shift in the context of the Ukrainian war, 
that Russia was sort of trying to play two games at once, trying to still be shadowy and deniable on the African continent and in other more international deployments, while trying to more openly acknowledge Wagner as an arm of the state in Europe, in Russia's own backyard. And I think now we've seen that that tension has started to backfire on them following the events of last month. And I think that that's one of the big questions they're facing now going forward as they try to pull some of those Ukraine operations and other operations closer to Russia under the control of the Ministry of Defense, while still trying to keep some distance, but also sharpen control over operations further abroad. So this is pretty wide and deep to hear you speak, Katrina. Delany, is the Wagner Group the only mercenary group in Russia? If not, who else is there and where are they operating? That's a great question. You know, it's interesting because Wagner is not the only PMC that's active in Africa. There are lots of different PMCs active in Africa, and there have been for a long time. There are French private military companies, Israeli private military companies, and they're sort of a common sight in a lot of these unstable countries in Africa where wars have been going on for a long time. I think it's interesting to look at the point that you pointed out, Movemba, in your introduction about how Wagner is really only active in four African countries. It's only active in Libya, Sudan, Central African Republic, and Mali. And so in a way, as you pointed out, the idea that they're all over Africa is a bit alarmist. Actually, they're really only involved in these places and to very different degrees. What are they doing in those places? Wagner in Africa has a very different footprint in Libya, Sudan, Central African Republic, and Mali. I'll highlight some of what they've been doing in those places. In Libya, reports emerged in late 2017, 2018, that a small number of Wagner personnel were helping train the Libyan commander Field Marshal Khalifa Haftar's forces. At the time, Haftar's forces were fighting the internationally recognized government in Tripoli. They eventually withdrew from Tripoli when Haftar stopped fighting the internationally recognized government. And since then, there have been reports that Wagner forces have continued to work with Haftar, including by helping his forces dig defensive trenches in the desert, guarding oil facilities. But it doesn't appear that there are large numbers of Wagner fighters in Libya. Estimates range in the hundreds now, down from their peak in the thousands in 2020. In Sudan, Wagner was first deployed to help bolster Omar al-Bashir, but later became associated with Hameti, the head of the powerful paramilitary rapid support forces. Since then, the army and Hameti's forces have been embroiled in a bloody power struggle that's fast becoming a full-blown civil war. And although Wagner has ties to both sides of the civil war or of the current conflict, the group's been viewed as particularly connected to Hameti and his vast gold operations. But it's important to note that in Sudan, most observers say that Wagner's support looks neither sustained nor significant for battlefield dynamics. And for his part, Hamedti appears to be keen to avoid any public association with Wagner. In the Central African Republic, Wagner's presence is, is much more extensive. Wagner has been providing support to the Central African president, Tuadera. To give some background of Wagner's support to Tuadera, in 2017, Russia obtained permission from the UN Security Council 
to send light weapons and ammunition to the country after an arms embargo exemption. And soon after, Russian military instructors accompanied the first shipments of weapons to the Central African Republic. Wagner personnel progressively replaced these instructors and eventually became entrenched into Adara's government. They moved beyond providing security to bolstering the presidency and were really key when rebel forces threatened the capital of Bangui in 2020 to securing President Tuadera's hold on power. In exchange, Wagner secured many long-term gold mining concessions, taken over customs, encroached on other sectors of the economy, and become very much embedded in the Central African Republic governance structure. In Mali, it's quite different. As you know, Bamako has struggled to quell a range of insurgencies since 2012. In 2021, a second coup in less than a year soured relations between Mali and its longtime partner, France. There's been an increasing amount of antipathy towards what is seen as Western influence and Western interventions in Mali. And in that context, Russia has been giving the country helicopters and military equipment. For its part, Wagner has been involved in Mali since the end of 2021, with an estimated 1,000 fighters deploying there. And Wagner in Mali has grown since 2021. Wagner operatives are reportedly patrolling with Malian soldiers. They've been implicated in some really nasty and alarming human rights abuses, um, working side by side with some soldiers in Malian army uniforms. But it's very different to the way that they are in Central African Republic because they haven't ingrained themselves as much in Mali's resource extraction industries. It seems like their engagement is pretty extensive in whatever place they find themselves. My question to you, Delani, is still, how is the Wagner Group different from other PMCs? So in the U.S., one famous PMC will have been Blackwater. That has since changed its name, I think, to XE. You know, in my, during my childhood, there were other PMCs, like Executive Outcome, which is South African. They were heavily involved in places like Sierra Leone and Liberia, which were experiencing very brutal civil wars. And they also portrayed in the movie Black Diamond. How are those outfits different from what we call today Blackwater? And why are they appealing to some of these regimes in the countries that you just mentioned? Libya, uh, the Central African Republic, Mali, and Sudan. I think the best way to answer your question, Mbemba, is to think about sort of common threads of Wagner's involvement in Africa, something that puts Wagner apart from other private military companies. The first common thread is that many of the countries where Wagner has been active suffer from longstanding instability, and Wagner both feeds off of and reinforces this. And so in many of the countries where it's active, there has been sort of a spiraling insecurity that has unfolded over years and years and years. And the countries who are partnering with Wagner value Wagner's flexibility to respond to their security concerns. They value that Wagner will sort of march side by side with them rather than fear from taking risks of losing personnel. But overall, this sort of one common thread that the countries where Wagner is active are really suffering from a longstanding instability. A second commonality 
is that the countries where Wagner has been active often have considerable natural resources. And so in a lot of these countries, the natural resource extraction has benefited elites for a long time. Wagner has been seizing on this benefit in a similar way, seeking to benefit from the resource wealth of countries that host it. And in a way, it continues to fuel the kleptocratic practices of the elites that it's involved with. And then a final common thread, which I think really puts Wagner apart, is that Wagner has tended to thrive in places where people harbor grievances about the West's perceived track record. And this is really important because this touches on some of the issues that, that Katrina spoke so eloquently about before, that countries that are hosting Wagner are fed up with what they see as Western interventions, there's a lot of anti-Western sentiment, frustration about Washington's historical inattention to African politics, real genuine anger about failed military interventions. And Wagner finds a very permissive audience in these places. Wagner in terms of its military linkages with governments, but also in terms of its pro-Russian influence campaigns, some of its disinformation campaigns, and the information narrative that Wagner and its associated companies tend to espouse in these places, which are heavy on the anti-Western and pro-Kremlin narratives. Katrina, the extensive list that Delaney has provided, I think only kind of scratches the surface. What is the appeal? Yeah, I think that Delaney's done a great job of going through a lot of the commonalities and kind of the appeal here. I think, as I see it, the core appeal is that Wagner can provide a coup-proofing function to keep these regimes in power, which is particularly important to many of these more autocratic regimes that have recently gained power themselves through a coup or other less than legitimate means, something like the military junta in Mali that itself gained power through a coup and has seen how easy that is, how delicate of a position they're in once they're in leadership. You basically have a situation where Wagner comes in and is more dedicated to pursuing their own interests and the interests of the Russian government than in actually fulfilling any terms of a security cooperation agreement. And at the same time, the host government is more interested in securing their own longevity and grip on power than they are interested in, again, securing real security outcomes for their population and for the country. And so the appeal with Wagner is that they can come in, they can be, you know, pretty honest with each other about what the real goal is, and that's maintaining power for the regime and on Wagner's side, achieving their various directives from the Kremlin, securing their own profits. And no one really has to put in that hard work of getting at the root causes of instability or insecurity. At the same time, because you're then partnering with Russia via Wagner, there's no pressure to adhere to broader democratic principles. There's no pressure to you know, support better human rights outcomes, to hold local forces accountable for human rights abuses, particularly when you have Wagner coming in, embedding with them or fighting alongside them and actually carrying out many of those same abuses. And there's no accountability towards transitional governments, anything along those lines. So this is a sort of no strings attached way of continuing to cement their hold on power. And oftentimes, Wagner can provide all of that at a cheaper price than they could elsewhere. We've seen in some locations, 
where rather than Wagner's arrival being facilitated by the relationship with Moscow or direct negotiations, that Wagner has actually been able to underbid its competitors. So in Mozambique, for example, where Wagner was present from the fall of 2019 to the spring of 2020, which is a fascinating example of their failures, actually, that they managed to get fired within six months after significant operational setbacks. But in that case, Wagner actually underbid a wide set of competitors who are largely South African PMCs and other PMCs that were accustomed to working in the region. At the time that the contract was given, many doubted how effective Wagner could actually be because they were coming in with very little experience, very little proven track record doing the kind of work that the government in Mozambique was looking for to combat the local Islamist insurgency in Cabo Delgado. But they offered the lowest price, they were brought in, and quickly they suffered failures because of that inexperience and poor preparation, essentially proving that to some extent you get what you pay for when you pay a low price for Wagner to come in. Now, Wagner can offer those low prices because their big profit isn't necessarily coming from that monthly contract payment from the government. In many cases, it's coming from their exploitation of natural resources, including gold, gemstones, and other minerals that they can secure through mining concessions, things like energy resources, oil, and natural gas, as well as, as you had listed before, Vemba, things like timber, coffee, etc. And so they're able to access natural resources. They're able to, in some cases, get priority access to other contracts in the country. That was something that was secured along with port renovation deals when they went into Madagascar. And they also gained the benefit of these various other diplomatic and military gains on behalf of the Russian state. Things like pursuing basing rights, uh, including the prospective naval base at Port Sudan and other abilities that provide much more benefit than a simple monthly salary ever could. It's obviously clear that the West really cares about this Wagner group, at least from our vantage point in Washington, D.C. One gets a sense that the Wagner group is the biggest of the baddest, if we use the vernacular, of LPMCs out there. But like both of you have outlined, they find themselves really in four countries all in Africa. This is a continent of 54 countries. So in that sense, it's a pretty minimal presence. Now, it runs deep, given what you've described, both of you. But why does the West care so much? And where exactly are they disrupting U.S. interests? I think in Washington, Wagner really came on the radar after the latest full-scale invasion by Russia of Ukraine, because Wagner's been so active in Ukraine, and atrocities committed by Wagner have been so horrible to see, so shocking to the world, so shocking to members of U.S. Congress. If you look at the role that Wagner has played in what has become a seminal battle in the Ukraine war, the Battle of Bakhmut, Wagner was was playing a very central role. And so as concerns mounted about um, Russian influence, Russian desecration of international norms, Wagner was front and center in the minds of U.S. policymakers because Wagner had eventually become 
become such sort of like a focal point for Russia's efforts in Ukraine. We haven't mentioned it yet, but Wagner's also been active in Syria. After Wagner sort of came to being um, in Ukraine initially after Russia's initial invasion of eastern Ukraine in 2014, but its next front was in Syria. And so while Wagner came on U.S. radar in Syria because of Wagner's activities there and, and in one particular instance, a sort of altercation between U.S. troops and unnamed Russian fighters that appeared to be Wagner, Syria was sort of one place where U.S. policymakers started to take the group more seriously and start thinking about them more seriously. But as a bottom line, it's really the Ukraine war that has brought Wagner to the real pressing attention of U.S. policymakers. Katrina, how does the group disrupt the Western interests, particularly the United States interests? So one thing I would just add as context going into this, I think Delaney's right in highlighting that there are four major deployments of Wagner right now in Africa, but there is documented Wagner presence in more countries than just those four. Now, this is on a very different scale than we're looking at rather than, you know, a couple thousand or several hundred fighters looking more on the scale often of, you know, between 10 to 20 troops present to help facilitate arms transfers or other, you know, equipment training along with Russian arms sales. Or, in, you know, in some cases like Madagascar, where there had previously been more concentrated operations, they're suspected to still be some lower level presence continued. And so I think there is also this sense that the force multiplier function remains and that they can potentially spread. We see that as they continue to talk with other countries like Burkina Faso, making a pitch to the Burkinabe government that they could fulfill a similar role to what we've seen in Mali. So I think part of, part of the American and Western mindset in looking at this is certainly in part, how do you push them back from the countries they're in now, but also how do you prevent them from continuing to spread and continuing to be able to ramp up those operations in some of the places where they have a light foothold if it becomes situationally relevant. In terms of looking at real U.S. interests there, I, I try to think of it in sort of four big buckets of U.S. concerns over Wagner. So the first is just this general displacement of Western influence in favor of partnerships with Russia. Sometimes this is the very overt replacing a longtime partner such as France, as we saw in Mali with the end of Operation Marcon and Task Force to Cuba with the other European partners, and now most recently the end of the UN mission. And just broadly, this is seen in the US sphere as sort of Russia expanding its influence on the continent to a degree that we haven't seen since the end of the Cold War and largely at the expense of Western partnerships. Second, we see a very concentrated interest in projecting Russian military and intelligence power. So some of that is access to basing. I mentioned before that they've been attempting to establish a Russian naval base at Port Sudan, which would give Russia long sought after access to the Red Sea and broader power projection in the Indian subcontinent. We also see as Wagner continues to spread its presence on the continent, it, of course, has operating bases in these various countries that it's present in, whether Wagner bases specifically or bases of local troops that they're able to operate out of. And this allows them to sort of use that presence to lily pad forward into additional cities, into additional countries. We often see at this point that when you see flights going down, either with additional Wagner troops, equipment, arms sales, etc. They often transit through Syria, then through Libya, then to various other sub-Saharan countries. 
And along with this, because of this presence, you not only have the logistics support, but also the ability to collect more intelligence, especially expanding the range of SIGINT collection, which is of growing concern to U.S. and its allies, particularly as they continue to operate in the region. The next big concern is, along the similar lines, the potential for Wagner personnel to either directly or indirectly through their operations come into contact with U.S. and other Western military and intelligence personnel working on the continent. This is something that actually has been driving a lot of the conversation around Wagner in Africa, deeper in the military and the intelligence community long before Wagner sort of came to prominence in political circles, as Delaney mentioned, with the war in Ukraine, because many of them would see as they operated in the fields, the effects of Wagner presence, and they would feel the strain of not having a unified U.S. policy or strategy to dealing with Wagner. And then the final concern is just the destabilizing effect that Wagner can have. Because Wagner is not really altruistically trying to get at the root causes of conflict or instability in any of the countries where it's operating, and in fact often does the opposite, contributing to worsening security outcomes increased attacks against civilians, including ones that they themselves perpetrate, we see an opportunity for jihadist groups and other violent actors to actually ramp up their operations and for security to deteriorate. This has already been documented in a country like Mali, where we've seen the number of attacks targeting civilians from all sides in the conflict increase several times over since Wagner arrived in late 2021. And this poses a big risk, especially as we look at West Africa as one of the locations where the jihadist threat from Al-Qaeda and Islamic State affiliates becoming the strongest. This is something that affects not only the country that they're rooted in, but also risks spilling over to various other countries in the region and risks becoming an unmanageable threat. So on that point, Katrina, though, on that point early on, you mentioned, both of you mentioned the disenchantment, disillusionment that African population at large feel vis-a-vis the West. In other words, the West did not really meet the Africans and try to help them resolve their security needs. That's why we got this. Today, there are reports of Congress, at least some members of Congress, U.S. Congress, considering declaring or designating the Wagner Group as a terrorist organization. The line is starting with you, What does that mean if such a thing were to become a reality? Thanks for asking that question. There has been a lot of talk about a designation for the Wagner Group as a foreign terrorist organization. On the 13th of July, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee considered a bill and passed a bill within the committee to designate the Wagner Group as a foreign terrorist organization, or rather to call on the Biden administration to designate Wagner as a foreign terrorist organization. The bill passed committee. It's unclear what the future of the bill will be. The Biden administration has so far resisted pressure to designate Wagner as a foreign terrorist organization. But The more talk there is about the designation, the more pressure from Congress that's posed on the Biden administration, I think the harder it will be for them to continue to avoid the designation. I think it's a really bad idea. And I think it's a bad idea for many reasons that have nothing to do with the atrociousness of Wagner's conduct. And I want to be very clear about that. Wagner has committed atrocities that are well recorded in places like Mali and the Central African Republic and Ukraine 
and other places. It is a heinous group that's committing really horrible, horrible acts. And as Katrina mentioned so so eloquently, is contributing to this really horrible instability in a lot of places that's tearing uh, people's lives apart and contributing to really intense humanitarian crises. That said, I think an FTO designation would backfire and it would backfire for the following reasons. First, I think an FTO designation would alienate African countries that work with Wagner or whatever Wagner will become in terms of its successors if the post-mutiny Wagner becomes a different kind of group. You know, the countries who have decided to work with Wagner would see the FTO designation as stigmatizing and criminalizing their security arrangements. They would see it as the U.S. saying, we don't recognize your genuine security concerns and we are criminalizing those. But there are also geopolitical considerations that would be relevant. African countries are trying to walk a fine line in the Ukraine conflict. They're trying to preserve their interests by maintaining a certain distance from both Moscow and Washington. They resent calls for them to be drawn into a big power struggle. And they resent what they perceive as demands for loyalty after the West has failed to support them when they needed it the most. So for instance, with climate financing or the distribution of COVID vaccines. And I think that an FTO designation would really up the ante of these feelings. That's sort of a first concern. A second concern is that designating an organization that controls territory or wields armed influence as a foreign terrorist organization, can hinder aid delivery. We've seen this all over the world in Colombia, Somalia, Syria, Yemen, and Wagner, because of the extensiveness with which it's active in places like the Central African Republic and Mali, but also because of sort of the question mark of its future operations, would really be a prime case for this impact on humanitarian aid. This is especially concerning in places that benefit from USAID funding. It would be very complicated for USAID to provide funding to countries that contract with Wagner. And I'm thinking about Mali and the Central African Republic. It would also be difficult in that vein to continue the diplomatic efforts that are required to engage these countries on peacemaking, on peace building, on stabilization, because evidence has shown in the past that the FTO designation in particular, because it triggers the material support statute, makes it very difficult to engage with the supporters of an FTO. A third reason is that an FTO could create some momentum for other counterproductive actions. I've written about how the designation of Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism could backfire, but the logic of designating Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism when Russia has said that it supported Wagner would be really clear if Wagner was an FTO. I would also be concerned that the logic would stand to potentially designate the governments that have been hosting Wagner as terrorist sponsors. I mean, it would be clear if Mali is paying Wagner, that Mali could be considered a sponsor of terrorism. And I, I'm just worried about that slippery slope, seeing as these policy moves sometimes tend to have take on this life of their own. I think another key concern, a fourth concern, is that it's really hard 
to reverse an FTO designation. It's a particularly sticky designation. We've seen in the past with other FTO designations, years go by, even after a situation's changed dramatically, even after there's a lot of goodwill to delist a group or the group has renounced their terrorist activities to delist that group. We saw this with the FARC in Colombia. It took five years after the FARC signed a peace deal with the Colombian government to delist them. And so I'm worried about the stickiness of this designation. And then finally, I think the risks that I mentioned would be worthwhile if the designation was certain or even likely to meet its goals, but there's little evidence to suggest that it would be a game changer. I mean, I I absolutely agree with Delaney. I don't know that there's much more for me to add on, but I would just say, you know, again, to really drive home that first point that she made, I think that at the end of the day, we need to recognize that these countries that are working with Wagner and working with Russia have very real security concerns. And so a part of any successful solution to dislodge Wagner will be offering viable and sustainable alternatives to them, preferably things that pair security assistance with broader support for development and good governance. And if the solution needs to involve better relationships with these countries, you certainly don't do that by ramping up a punishment campaign against them by putting them in this position to be associated with terrorist organizations and come down with a hammer. What that actually does is play into the very same information narratives that Russia is promoting, trying to portray that the West is only interested in Africa when it can be used as a pawn in a broader geopolitical chess game against Russia or against China. And if we take this course of action, we're basically proving that right. We're saying that we only care about engaging in this area insofar as it can be used as a punishment towards this Russian actor and it would be a punishment in disregard to the ongoing needs of African countries, which is the exact opposite of what we need to be doing. As well, to Delaney's last point on efficacy, I think we need to think a lot about what we want to achieve with whatever action we take against Wagner. Something like an FTO designation would certainly be symbolic, and it would be something that could be pushed through relatively quickly. But I think that we need to, to be quite frank, avoid taking action to feel like we're taking action. We need to think about how to actually get out of these very difficult situations that have developed on the African continent, particularly in these places with these deeply entrenched security problems that Wagner is making worse. And, you know, what, what does an FDO designation actually add? In effect, people have pointed to the various different financial punishments that could be exacted basically going beyond the sanctions that we've already imposed. But already, we struggle to enforce those sanctions because Wagner and other Russian-linked actors have easy access through their smuggling networks to loosely regulated markets where they're able to still exploit all of these raw natural goods that they gain access to, even in spite of those sanctions. And so I would really urge U.S. and allied policymakers to grapple with the fact that as much as it's hard to see what's happening and feel like you can't act as much as this feels like it could be an easy win to really think through the detrimental effects on our relationships with African countries if we were to take this route and look at the benefit we would gain for those tremendous costs, which would be pretty minimal. I think that solutions are going to be hard. They're going to take a long time and they're going to need long-term commitments in the region. That's not easy. That's not a satisfying answer, but it's the only thing that's actually going to move the needle at the end of the day. I just wanted to make a quick point to piggyback on Katrina. The 
I think about the Central African Republic. Wagner's been a crutch for the Central African Republic president. They protected him from an attempted coup. They've supported his efforts to silence opposition in civil society. They helped him control rebel forces in the country for the first time in decades. Why would the Central African Republic tell Wagner to go packing? They already know that Wagner is an unpopular security partner choice. I don't see how the president of the Central African Republic would say, you know, you're so crucial to my power and my standing. The foreign terrorist organization designation changes my mind and you have to leave the country. I think if anything, he might not be in a position to tell Wagner to go packing because Wagner is so ingrained in Central African Republic institutions and so important for his hold on power. Well, on that note, I'd like to thank both of you for such uh, insightful and insightful discussion. Katrina Doxy, Associate Director and Associate Fellow of the Transnational Threat Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and Delani Simon, Senior Analyst for the U.S. Program at the International Crisis Group. Thank you very much, ladies. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends. Subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts. You can also read our analysis and report at csis.org slash Africa. So long. Mm-hmm.